Hey, yo, it's Master coming at ya. Coming at ya. And with that beat, hello and welcome to In Focus. I am Rom Gayoso, your host. In today's show, we're welcoming a distinguished member of the World Future Studies Federation, WFSF, and we're speaking with Professor Bill Halau about his new book. So stick around. So uh, let's uh, get going. Before um, I start introducing our guests, let me say a few words about the show. So this show right, is actually a, the result of a partnership between WFSF and yours truly, Futures Television. We are joining forces to advance sharing of information and knowledge of futures topics. Our focus is on future studies, foresight, and futures literacy. So what should you expect? Well, you will gain direct access to knowledge and information produced by the top minds in this field. WFSF is a UNESCO and UN consultative partner and a truly global NGO with members in over 60 countries. So let me say a few words about our guest, Dr. William Halau. He's a professor emeritus of management, technology, and innovation at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He specializes in emerging technologies, strategic planning, and institutional change. He is also the author of Beyond Knowledge, How Technology is Driving an Age of Consciousness. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Halal to the show. How are you doing today, Bill? Hi, Rob. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I've been uh, looking forward to speak with you. And today's talk is about your book. It's, it's really interesting. And thank you so much for taking the time. It's, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, telling your audience about this exciting uh, developments in the book. So let's start from the beginning. So um, how is technology actually driving consciousness well i i have a slide that will make this more clear later but i can sum it up very simply the digital revolution is automating knowledge uh, i think that's a simple way to put it it's a little more complicated than that and uh, that means that attention is being driven up the hierarchy of consciousness into the subjective realm subjective consciousness uh the, the thing that is, is driving most people today uh, is uh, our emotions, values, and beliefs, subjective consciousness. And that's why we see all of this uh, imaginative, crazy behavior. It's a result of the uh, social media, the digital revolution, I think. And I guess we all have a, a big role to play uh, the media, um, not just social media, but I guess all of us as... Um... As a society, I think we 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 contribute to uh, to the madness uh, to a great extent. So perhaps uh, we we should rein ourselves in. <laughs> um, well, that really what it amounts to. Uh, we're entering an age of consciousness now. Uh, uh, I'm convinced uh, the data shows that. And but it's not a very good consciousness. It's kind of a crazy consciousness. And we have the responsibility to change that to make the consciousness 
something that will work, that will create a, a sustainable world. And that means we need a, a global consciousness, uh, a consciousness that understands that the world is an integrated system right now. Well, let's, let's remain at this topic a little bit. So uh, you mentioned uh, we are in an age of consciousness. Is there evidence of that? Yes, I, I can cite two or three forms of evidence. Uh, one is uh, my work on uh, social evolution uh, plots the, the life cycle of evolution is what I call it, the, the life of civilization on the planet. And that shows that we're moving beyond knowledge now and the next logical step beyond, beyond knowledge is consciousness because when you think about it, everything beyond knowledge is consciousness. <clears throat> uh, the other major uh, source of information is that uh, we, uh, uh, my, my company TechCast studies this kind of thing and we find that uh, about 60% on average of the uh, decisions that are being discussed are, are subjective consciousness rather than than knowledge. So those are two sources of evidence. And a third one is that uh, we, we do a forecast of this and, and we forecast that it's happening right now. Okay, so this, uh, specifically speaking, so the consciousness. So how can this consciousness or more uh, advanced consciousness help us solve today's, you know, global crisis, say, you know, Climate well, change. Yeah, that, that's really the key idea here. The, uh, the crisis is a result of the present uh, mindset, which is not uh, able to address these problems. The present mindset focuses on self-interest, uh, money, and power, to simplify things a little bit. But I think that's an accurate summary of what, what motivates most people. Uh, and that, that's, uh, those, those motives are basic. They will always... Uh, pertain, but we need to augment that with something beyond that, a, a sense of cooperation uh, to recognize that we live in, in a single planet and it's, it's unified in, in effect. Uh, economically, it's unified. That's why the supply chains have become such a critical issue because the economy is unified, that the world is unified economically. It's unified um, in terms of information systems through the internet, and it's unified in terms of environmental impacts. Uh, the whole world uh, is impacted uh, by climate change, that sort of thing. And so we have to recognize that and develop a, a form, a, a mental revolution, a different way of thinking that focuses on cooperation to, to augment the, uh, the present focus on self-interest. We, we still have to... Uh, uh, respect our self-interest, of course, but we also have to augment that with a sense of cooperation so we can solve these enormous global problems that prevent uh, any further progress. If we don't solve these problems, I think the world will face enormous disaster. Yeah, let's, so let's bring Gerd Hofstede to the to discussion for a second. So some cultures indeed are, you know, centered on the self and other cultures are centered in, in the collective. And as you as you explained, we probably need to come together as a collective and try to solve or jointly solve the problems of the collective. So what kind of strategies or advice would you offer for us to move away from just thinking about 
ourselves, our selfish interests into understanding, well, it is one planet and we all face the same kind of problem at a, at a global level. How can we get people more excited or pay attention to this, this globe, being globally aware, not just locally or selfishly aware? Well, I'm going to show you a little uh, in a little while what I call the life cycle of evolution, and it plots the growth of civilization um, throughout the last few millennia. And I think we have to first understand what's happening. And what's happening is that we're moving to the, the last stage of social evolution, which is, as I say, consciousness, similar to the the, the rise and consciousness of a, of a young person, a teenager. Uh, young people struggle to figure out who they are. They get into a lot of trouble because they can't cope with the modern world. And uh, the, the pain keeps increasing until they finally reach the point where they give in and they accept their responsibilities to be an adult. That's roughly where we are today. We have to, if we can understand this situation uh, the, the, the crisis that we're in and the fact that it's, it's of our doing, then I think we can start to um, change and adopt a global perspective. Wonderful. So, so let's go back to, you know, that life cycle again. So I would like to share uh, one of your slides, which actually is titled that. So do you uh, mind explaining and uh, what is the life cycle of evolution and why should we really care? Good. Yeah, let me uh, let me do this. Can you see my cursor? Okay. Good. Uh, uh, let me first start by explaining the scales. The thing that's unique about this graph is that it uses a logarithmic scale for the bottom scale, uh, which is necessary. Otherwise, you wouldn't see anything. With an ordinary scale, the curve would run flat and make a sharp turn up. You wouldn't see a thing. But a logarithmic scale, the uh, period today. Is, is expanded, and so you can see what's going on here. The vertical scale is simply the, uh, the various stages of social evolution that we've been through. And all of the data is historic data, so this is, this is empirically based. It's, it's science-based. It's good science. And so what this does is it shows the plot of civilization as it's uh, risen over the, 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 the centuries. And what's really remarkable about it, I think, is that uh, the data fits a S-curve almost perfectly. Normally, when you plot scientific data, there's usually scatter because it's, it's, there's, there's uh, variations in the data, errors in the data. Here, there's no scatter. It's a perfect fit. And so I think we should take that seriously. This is the life cycle of the planet. And the life cycle is now coming to a conclusion in an age of consciousness, just the way a young person uh, would reach maturity by becoming aware of their responsibilities and their role in the world. So uh, this is a remarkable thing to see that it's happening right now. Uh, and I'd like to uh, mention a few of the data points here to clarify this. The, uh, the information revolution occurred in the year 2000. I remember this very well. Uh, 20 years before that, when I was a young professor, I could see this was happening, uh, the beginnings of the use of personal computers. And I would tell people, I think we're going to 
be using personal computers. And this was a time when computers filled rooms, if you can uh, remember that. And the usual, re usual reaction I would get is, why would anybody want a personal computer? So this tells us it's hard to imagine this sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's never happened before. So people have a hard time imagining it, but it did happen. About the year 2000, all of a sudden, corporations were calling themselves knowledge organizations. Uh, most people worked as knowledge workers. Uh, knowledge management was a big deal. And so it came about, it, it really did occur about the year 2000. Well, something similar is happening now, only now it's the in a age of consciousness. And uh, all of these stages of development have been uh, initiated by a uh, revolution in thought, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the post-industrial revolution, the information revolution. And so it's reasonable to expect a mental spiritual revolution now to create an age, a, a, a global consciousness. That's what's needed right now. The ability to see the world as a unified system and to govern it uh, by cooperating uh, amongst one another so as to solve these enormous problems that threaten civilization. Uh, the, the main one, of course, being climate change, but there are about a dozen other crises uh, as severe as climate change. So you mentioned the information change, and I remember in the late 70s, my brother bought a uh, Macintosh 2 computer, and he brought it home. And I look at the thing, and I thought it was laughable. Uh, I, uh, you know, so it was, I said, this is just a slow typewriter, because he had to kind of put adjust a paper and the paper would jam and the printer would jam and nothing would work. So the time that he was adjusting the paper would sit down on that fancy IBM machine and, and, and click away and go. Rah, 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 and, and that was done in, in, in minutes. And would, I, I would laugh at him. This is, this is just a stone typewriter. Why, why are you bothering? And then he looked at me and said, oh, but you can play games on this. I said, what? <laughs> so I realized that the slow typewriter perhaps was used for, for something else. And I guess I guess all of us were kind of uh, uh, surprised by you know what technology could do and well we indeed does, but and I think we're still as a society trying to deal with you know the information age and, and who controls what and, and where the information shows and how and etc. Uh, but you you kind of put your finger in, in a couple of specific dates in there. And, and one of them, I think, was uh, 2020, where you say we are at the start at the age of consciousness. So why 2020? That's a really good question. Uh, the, um, the post-factual uh, wave of nonsense that we're all familiar with started oh, about 10 years or so ago, Sarah Palin, that kind of thing. And of course, it accelerated with people like Donald Trump and on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left and uh, AOC and that sort of thing. Uh, so that, that this has been going on for a while. But uh, I, you have to find a point in which you want to say that this is when the the move beyond knowledge started. And I think it's roughly the year 2020 because something very specific happened in 2020 that highlighted this, the insurrection against the, the capital of the United States. That just stands out. 
it's it's a, a clear manifestation that we were living beyond knowledge uh, because the whole thing was based upon fantasy it just it was un, un, unrelated to any any facts so i i take uh, the insurrection as the critical event that marks the beginning of the age of consciousness yeah, it was kind of difficult because if I remember correctly, President Bush was one of the first people who acknowledged the results of the election. You know, I I, I think people would associate him as a Republican, I, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, strange to think that, you know, uh, something like that could happen in the United States. I mean, you are sitting there in Washington, right? But for us, uh, looking from outside, it's just like, is this happening? I mean, is this is this television? It's happening around the world. It's happening around the world. The in England, the Brexit phenomena was kind of the same thing. The um, uh, when when Boris Johnson took took office in India, uh, you know, the the leader of India is doing crazy things, uh, attacking the Hindu population. So it's happening around the world, and it, it's not the fault of individuals. It's the fact that the digital revolution is changing the way we think. It's created, for instance, uh, social media. And social media, by its very nature, um, provokes disinformation, uh, confusion, and controversy. And, and the, that, that's consciousness. But it's a bad form of consciousness. We, we have the responsibility now to uh, change that and make it a responsible form of consciousness, uh, one that uh, a global consciousness able to create a sustainable civilization. Yeah, and I think social media does have um, a part to play in here at, at, at some point in time. And I think a lot of people derive their news more from social media than they do from the traditional you know, uh, news organizations. Right? Change the world. It's, it's a dramatic change. Uh, we've always had crazy behavior, of course, but now it's... it's uh, it's empowered individuals to uh, speak whatever they want on these loudspeakers, uh, Facebook and Twitter. So the whole world is, is connected with uh, these exchanges, this kind of gossip. Uh, and it's, it's a, a new force. It's a new force that has to be reckoned with. Now, Professor, there's, there's something a little bit troublesome to me. Is, is, so, for example, um, NBC, ABC, all those platforms, they can't go out and say baseless things or yell fire, you know. They can't do that because they are regulated. Whereas someone in social media can come out and say the most horrible things and there's, there's no regulation. Um, should we talk about at least some, if there's no sense, should we have the, the, the regulator say, you know, wait a second, if you behave like a news organization, you should perhaps be monitored and, and regulated or obey by some kind of rules? Or what, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, um, someone playing the role of a news organization, yet they're not? That's exactly true. I have a paper out called How to Tame the Social Media Monster. And uh, it addresses this very issue. Uh, social media is, is uh, the dominant force that governs society today. One uh, analyst said, in the past, wars were con conducted using weapons. Today, it's social media. So that highlights how powerful social media is. And we have to find some way to 
keep it under control, to keep it within bounds. Uh, uh, I think the best thing we could do is to monitor the amount of disinformation that every platform creates and penalize the, the companies that run the platforms. But and so there, there are ways we could regulate it directly like that. But I think the most important thing is we need a culture that uh, stresses the importance of truth, of finding truth. And we have to teach young people how to discriminate between bad information and good information so that they can reach informed uh, opinions. And so I think it really has to start with children. We have to develop a culture that, that prizes the search for truth. We don't have that now. Right now we glorify these, uh, these crazy uh, ideas. Uh, you know, it, it, you, you can take your choice. It's, it's all over the internet. But we, we need a culture that uh, that uh, prizes truth seeking. And perhaps that's a good inheritance from the, the classic times. But, you know, nowadays it's so difficult. So when I'm, you know, at teaching someone, right, and I explain, and they say, why should they look at, you know, a scientific paper? It's boring. I said, no, it's not. You know, peer-reviewed papers and other people look at it and believe me, they are not trying to sell you their fish. You know, they're trying to do through right. analysis and, and explain this is where we have been. This is where we are. Those are the gaps in the research. And this is why you should re read this paper, because I will focus on this specific. Uh, but nowadays, you know, and, and I'm, I don't like naming cows, but, you know, people look at, you know, uh, sites on the internet where anyone can edit as being source of truth and say, look, this is great for gossip. Or to talking about movies, but to talk about real issues, you know, and that's kind of dangerous. So somewhere along the lines, I think we 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 lost the connection, or perhaps we didn't do a, a good enough job at explaining why this this fact finding is so important, and and perhaps it, we have to go down, as you mentioned, to you know the high schools and the middle schools and explain. You can't just go around making things up. So so where? Where should we start to get things right? You know. Well, I think we, as I, I'm going to go back to the main point that I made earlier. I think we have to understand what's happening in terms of social evolution. This very thing that we're talking about right now, we have to see that we're we're no longer in an age of of knowledge. That, that uh, that's uh, that's a fact. I think we're operating beyond knowledge. We're living beyond knowledge now. So if we could just acknowledge that then we could be more careful. And uh, then we, uh, in an age of consciousness, which is what we're entering, uh, we have to recognize that that bears a responsibility. It's like a teenager uh, uh, going through his own crisis of maturity. Teenagers get lost, they get confused. They don't know how to cope with the modern world. And so they do crazy things, drugs and crime and whatever. Uh, and the pain can become severe. They can really jeopardize their lives. But at some point, the pain becomes so great that they, they submit and they accept their responsibilities to become an adult. That's where we are now. We have to accept our responsibility as a global civilization to behave responsibly, to address the crises that face us, and to create a, a world that is sustainable. It's a huge responsibility, and but I don't think it's going to take forever. Uh, I think it's going to happen uh, in this decade, uh, about 2030, 
is our best estimate from my TechCast project um, at the point at which we uh, are likely to experience uh, something like a global consciousness. That's the key. We need a different way of thinking about the world, a different mindset. Okay, well, let's let's go um, one step at a time. So uh, first, so what does beyond knowledge really mean? So that's the title of the book. So what does it mean? Let, let's go to the next slide. Uh, Certainly. I think that would uh, help. Good. Now, here is a uh, the structure of consciousness shown in this uh, triangle. You could argue about the particular items in there, but something like this, I think, is pretty well accepted by the scientific community, especially the distinction between objective and subjective forms of consciousness. Objective consciousness are the things that computers are good at, like acquiring data, uh, learning, and and using knowledge to make decisions. That's what computers are good at. And computers are automating that now. And as that disappears from our attention, uh, people focus on the higher end of the hierarchy, the subjective realm, and that's what's happening. So this explains, I think, why we're seeing this crazy behavior, because the digital revolution is driving human attention from the objective forms of consciousness into the subjective forms of consciousness. And so, and what this means uh, specifically is that decisions and issues are not based upon knowledge. They're based upon values, beliefs, and emotions. And that's just a fact, but we have, but we can do that. We can change this. If we understand what's happening, then we can be uh, realistic about this and uh, find our way to creating a, uh, really a, a unified planet. I don't think we have any choice. It's either learn how to live together on a single planet or or perish. Yeah, actually, this is, uh, this is a, a great point that you make. So it's kind of difficult. We always had selective attention, but one of the things we learn at school is to acknowledge our own biases so well. So this is a bias. And, and I guess we we are either losing or deciding consciously not to use that bias acknowledgement skills anymore. So, uh, you know, things that are rumor becomes, quote, fact or, quote, truth, because we no longer acknowledge our own shortcomings, our own, you know, cultural uh, vices or, or, you know, and, and I think this is very challenging for the young people because they see uh, not people their age, but people our age or older, uh, coming out and saying things on television or trying to push specific agendas that, you know, we all know are, are not true, but because of, you know, we don't criticize our, our biases anymore. We don't, we don't declare them. We used to, now we're writing a paper, you declare, well, this is my bias. They're not used to this thing, right? So what kind of, uh, should, should we try to do that? Should we ex go back to explaining, you know, uh, you know, follow the paper money or follow the trail. So who gains what from doing this? And this is my bias. And what's your bias? Should, should we try to go back to a point where we try to raise awareness about, you know, how bias works and, and why should we be recognizing it and, and methods to, to ameliorate the situation? What's your thoughts? Exactly. That's right. I think the first thing to do is to recognize what's happening, just to understand this, this dynamic in this chart. 
if we could just understand this, most people don't understand this. They don't understand that this is being caused by the digital revolution. So we start by understanding that, and then we accept our responsibility to become adults. You know, it's just like the teenager uh, going through his crisis of maturity. We have to go through our own crisis of maturity. We have to recognize that we're not being realistic and that we have to control our behavior and uh, accept responsibility for for uh, these, these crises that we've caused that are not necessary. Climate change is man-made. It's not necessary. We could change this. There are solutions that are out there right now. The best solution that I know of is to simply uh, uh, put a tax on carbon, a global tax on carbon, so that the, the damage is internalized in economic terms. And then uh, let the corporations and individuals do whatever they want as long as as they pay that tax for the carbon that they produce and they will find the best solutions to minimize the use of carbon because they would have the incentive to do that so we have to create incentive systems that work by uh, taxing carbon for instance and, it, and if we did it well it would not hurt the economy if the funds were returned to the citizenry then you would not hurt the economy. It, it, in fact, it could uh, encourage economic growth. So there are solutions out there, but uh, it's hard to talk about these things in a realistic way because of this post-factual nonsense that has gripped everybody. Uh, the world is just caught up in this, this, this madness. It's kind of a mass hysteria. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of pick one of the points you made there, and you mentioned beliefs and values in, in the pyramid. So one thing that I, I found really interesting in now King Charles III, uh, his uh, ascension speech, he said, defender of faiths in plural. So I, I think we kind of, uh, I noticed, I said, oh, that's interesting, because uh, we, up until now, we had people saying, no, my faith is better than yours, and theirs is better than his, and, you know, and it, so we, we use beliefs and faith as, as a way to differentiate, disunite, and, and kind of go at each other versus now, perhaps, this is evidence that we will start to say, hey, uh, we have different faiths, so what? You know, I mean, perhaps we need to do a little bit better at, uh, you know, we still have religious conflict around the world. So how, how could we, uh, so let's go to that beliefs and values there. We have people with different values. And we have people with different beliefs, but how can we express to others, especially the ones growing up, that's okay. It's okay to have different values. It, it's okay to have different beliefs. We, we can all coexist together. That is a really good point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Uh, what's happening, uh, I think, is that the uh, former belief in religion, that is the dogma of religion, is disappearing. People are leaving uh, the old religions, but they're moving to spirituality, the essence of religiosity, the spiritual experience. And when they do that, uh, they're prepared to use a draw on a variety of religions, not just one religion. You can find Catholics who, who believe in uh, Buddhism and maybe go to a Protestant church. And so that changes everything. Because uh, then we can see that the religions are all roughly similar. They're all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to help us find our way 
uh, to become better spiritual beings. And so that has a unifying quality to it when you see that, that all the religions are just vehicles for achieving spirituality. So I think that's a very powerful force that has a unifying uh, effect. We, we, we're, we're going to appreciate, I think, uh, all of the different religions as uh, simply uh, various ways to achieve uh, uh, spiritual guidance. Uh, and that's going to unify the world, help unify the world. In fact, uh, the Dalai Lama and many other religious leaders have called for a global ethics or something like that based upon the common uh, principles that uh, govern almost all religions, like cooperation and treating your fellow citizen well. Uh, so there are these common uh, beliefs in all religions that we should uh, use as a basis for creating a, a global ethics or a global consciousness, something that everybody on the planet can accept. Because you have to have a common belief system to make any society work. Uh, it, it's just uh, essential. And we lack a common belief system for the planet. Yeah, but it's so interesting you mentioned the Dalai Lama because I, I kind of think he's such an amazing person. So who would have thought? So he was, you know, chased out of Tibet, right, into exile. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Tibet lost the leadership that uh, he offered. But we and the rest of the world gained so much because instead of uh, preaching inside of the walls there, his message now is delivered all over the world. And, and I, I think like people like him and like or, or Desmond Tutu or, or so many others, uh, all the religious leaders that are out there and they are preaching, you know, you know, love, understanding, awareness, uh, bringing people together. And perhaps that's the kind of... Um, religious leader that we should really see is the ones that promote what unites or, or the commonalities that we share as opposed to the lack thereof, right? Exactly. The it, It's just terrible to see uh, a third of the world uh, uh, hooked on uh, Christianity, another third of the world believing in Islam, uh, and that kind of thing. It's, it's totally unnecessary. But those are the, the sources of the divisions uh, that, that uh, make the world hard to manage right now. These different belief systems that separate people from one another. Whereas they're really all doing the same thing. They're all trying to do the same thing. And that's what we have to see. Yeah, I'm actually very disappointed specifically at someone. Because uh, I'm going to mention the uh, the war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine right oh. now. So the the religious leader of Russia, you know, could have used his oh, voice right. to say, "Let's come together, you know, uh, you know, let's, you know, uh, people are people, brothers and sisters. Let's let's find a way." Instead, he used his voice to justify aggression. I said, "How how come a religious leader right. of that magnitude says something?" like that you know it's, it's well, yeah he's uh, the, the archbishop of the orthodox church in russia is uh been captured by the kremlin i think uh, he's not doing his job well but it's fascinating there are uh, uh signs of serious rebellion within russia i noticed recently the city of pittsburgh of uh, petersburg uh used to be uh 
at Petersburg uh, and another city have revolted against the Kremlin. They are critical. They're saying that Putin has, has taken them into an unnecessary war that is killing Russian men, disabling Russian men. It's made the world hate Russia, uh, threatened them with nuclear weapons. They don't like it. They're calling on Putin to resign. It's amazing. And with the uh, now that the invasion is faltering in a serious way, I think Putin is coming under enormous pressure to do something. And anything could happen. He could be ousted uh, by his generals through a coup. Um, the uh, his his uh, fellow uh, politicians could ease him out the way they would ease out uh, political leaders during the time of the USSR. Or we could see a, a grassroots revolt uh, occur because Putin has made a terrible mistake. And I think he knows it by now. Uh, and one of the things that's so encouraging about this is that uh, a large portion of the world has united against, uh, uh, against Putin in support of Ukraine. It's amazing. All of Europe and countries all, all around the world, uh, really, uh, uh, Kenya, uh, Azerbaijan, Finland have, have come out in support of Ukraine because they they see how terrible this is. It's a violation of the the uh, the, the rules the, of the world that have governed and created peace for the last fifty or sixty years. Um, and all all of these these people who have uh, come out in support of Ukraine constitute a global consciousness. That's what's so fascinating about this. That's what global consciousness looks like when a large number of people uh, get together and they understand truth. And we need, we need to see more of that. We need to see that around climate change, around inequality, and so forth. Yeah, Professor, let me ask you a different kind of question, right? So uh, we, uh, and the Pakistanis rightfully pointed it out, we're not really paying any attention. So a 100 kilometer long artificial lake was created during the floods in Pakistan. And people don't seem to be like shocked or uh, amazed. Uh, and I said, well, we perhaps are not paying any attention because, oh, it's so far away, right? But uh, it's, it's one world and, you know, if it happens there, guess what? It, it could happen elsewhere, right? I I I, uh, I may be wrong about this, but I understand that something like half of Pakistan is underwater, or two thirds of Pakistan it's, is. It's some ungodly number. I heard some it, number. And, and you're you're exactly right, Ram. This is a a a signal to us about what could happen everywhere, and, and the wildfires that are occurring in California now and in Australia. Uh, we're seeing the early signs of the damage that climate change is going to create. And it, this is just the beginning. It's going to get a lot worse. But thankfully, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you know, this crisis of maturity idea, the, when the pain becomes so severe, people are forced to react. They are reacting now. Uh, I, I see uh, serious uh, re, uh, uh, steps being taken to alleviate climate change. In the US, for instance, I didn't think this was possible. But a recent bill has advocated, I think, $300 billion to address the climate problem. It's not quite enough, but it's a, a large beginning 
So I think people are starting to react. It may be uh, late. And so uh, it, it's, it's later than we should have done it. So we're going to keep seeing more pain from climate change. But I think it's a good, there's a good chance that the world is going to react in the next few years. And so we will kind of coast our way into a, a, a stable stability, a stable equilibrium. So, you know, Professor, one other thing that maybe you could shine some light is uh, we keep using the you and them a lot, right? We keep saying, oh, that's the Pakistanis problem or a problem in Pakistan, and that doesn't really pertain to me here in the United States or near or elsewhere. How can we move to a situation where we kind of, you know, acknowledge, so there's a lot of pain and suffering going on in Pakistan right now. It's real, you know, people died, people lost their livelihoods. I mean, it, it, it's a cataclysm, uh, indescribable. Yeah. Yet here in the West, we kind of uh, uh, hit the ignore button or perhaps we're so overwhelmed by by tragedy and other kinds of news or this is yesterday's news. We, we are not paying real attention to you know what's going on down there. Uh, so uh, how can we change our discourse or change our speech or change uh, you know the way we think in terms of uh, us versus them and more like you know we how can we get to we that's another great question uh, I think one of the things that we uh, need to cultivate is a way to listen to one another across differences uh, I have a project going on right now called talking across differences I think this is uh, one of the foundational um, skills we have to cultivate, the ability to listen to people that you don't agree with. And this is hard, but we can do it. Uh, it simply requires us to, uh, when we speak, to avoid using inflammatory language, to speak from the heart, to speak about the things that really concern us deeply. That's something that people can understand. And then to listen to what people say instead of objecting. You, know, you, you can't say, I disagree, you're wrong. All of that should stop. We should just listen to what people think. Just hear them out uh, and ask constructive questions. Uh, that's a talent that I think we have to cultivate. And if we could do that, that would be the beginning of a global consciousness because then we would all be united in a search for truth. We would all be listening to one another and we would realize that truth is comes from consensus of opinion rather than one individual having the right answers. You know, that's that's so, so true. I hope you can share more of that work. You have to come back for sure. But uh, I think we, we're losing the ability to listen. You know, when I went to school, at least, and I'm perhaps I'm aging myself, but, you know, one of the things I was taught is if someone is talking, shut up and listen. And exactly. if, you don't, if you don't understand what they're saying, paraphrase and repeat. Is this what yeah. you just said? And ask but a question. People, ask a question. But people don't do that anymore. They just wait for someone to shut up so they can mouth something else. So mm -hmm. you didn't even... Did you, I mean, not even hearing, I'm not saying that, not even the sounds, it's not even listening, not, no listening, but not even hearing. I mean, somebody else is speaking. Maybe we should make some kind of uh, efforts to understand what's being said. Yeah. And, and if we don't do that, and perhaps, again, it's going back to the education system, maybe we have to go back and talk the basics of 
listening and I, I, I feel this is crazy but you know I, I talk to people about listening as well I'm so so glad you are paying attention to this and you're bringing more awareness but perhaps we have to kind of you know throw away a bunch of things and go back you know to the yeah. basics of yeah. you know awareness and we talk about about empathy here but if there's no listening how can we probably exactly. empathize with someone right yeah, we're so busy fighting. Uh, I wonder if we could go through some of the other slides because sure. I want, there's a very important point I want to make. Uh, here's the what I call the crisis of global maturity, uh, the challenge that the world faces. Uh, you know, here are all these this, this data that shows that we're heading for disaster. The COVID pandemic showed the system doesn't work. New York Times had a survey. 50% of uh, people think humanity is doomed. The UN report on climate change says... Unless something is done soon, we'll have total societal collapse is likely. And there's our estimate from TechCast for a global consciousness. But it, notice how opinion is pretty well divided. Only a 50% probability that this will happen at 2030, plus or minus five years. It shows that there is enormous doubt out there. A lot of people are have been so discouraged by the events of the last uh, decade or two that they can't believe anything good will happen. There's a loss of faith and hope. And so the world is poised at, uh, on a, a knife edge between disaster and maturity. So it's a very tough situation. Let's move on. I want to show you something. Uh, now, this is really important. Uh, nothing is really going to change until we change the institutions that make society work. And ironically, I think business corporations could lead the world out of this mess because business executives have come to see that they don't have any choice. The problems are so severe that they have to start addressing those problems. And so they've given up on the focus of, on profit alone as their primary goal. And they've adopted what's being called stakeholder capitalism or ESG, environment, social and governance. And they're doing it. Uh, about 90% of the corporations in the United States practice ESG because they know they have to do this if they want to have a future at all. So it's happening in corporations. And this, I think, is leading to what I call a, uh, a system of democratic enterprise where all of the parties to the corporation are considered roughly equal. The investors who invest capital, of course, and expect to get profits, the workers who invest their, their labor and, and human resources, the customers who put up purchasing power and governments and so forth. And this would be dramatic. Uh, and it's happening right now. I don't think we understand, at least I don't think business people fully understand uh, where it's going to go. But I think it's going to go towards a, a system of democratic enterprise that is going to be more powerful um, because the stakeholders will work with managers to, a, to solve strategic problems that create value. So the, co the company becomes more productive, everybody benefits, including making more money for investors and, and possibly at less risk because the sources of confusion and uncertainty in the corporate environment, investors or uh, yeah, investors, uh, labor leaders and customers and so forth are now part of the company. So they're, they're, they're neutralized. They're working with the company now. So this would be a more stable and more prosperous, prosperous 
economic system. I think that's a very powerful development. It's happening right now. And it means that business people have the opportunity to lead the world out of this mess. Yeah, I see that too. Uh, you know, they, they were very critical of, you know, what Bill Gates knows about the pandemics. He says, I don't know, but he's helping solve the problem. So, you know, people in the business world come out and, and tackle, you know, and he's working with, you know, creating a, a vaccine for malaria. I mean, what does he have to do with that? Well, he created, you know, Microsoft. But, you know, I see that people, you know, and there are business leaders out there that I they truly are enlightened. And they are, you know, trying to make social change, trying to bring positive change to the world. And I think we should welcome that kind of trend. Absolutely. I, it, it's just in the early stages of development. But this could really, uh, uh, really change things. Uh, and the, if business people could really take this seriously and do it well, uh, the corporation could become a model of collaboration. You know, they would still uh, have to compete in a, in a marketplace, of course. That's not going to change. You still have free enterprise. But the corporation itself would become a model of cooperative behavior. And that would set the tone for society at large. People would say, yeah, it makes sense to cooperate. Cooperation is, is productive. And so we would uh, we would introduce an ethic of cooperation, which is really the the basis of global consciousness. People define global consciousness in lots of different ways, but fundamentally, it's about cooperation. Yeah. So perhaps this is uh, our times is a good balance against uh, Machiavelli that saw the evil prince <laughs> taking by force. Now we have the enlightened one. Yeah. Uh, Giving we, back, yeah, we need we need a new renaissance. That's what we need. A new renaissance. That's, that's uh, where we're going. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, one uh, final question for you. Uh, you use the term technologies of consciousness. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, let me explain this. Uh, for the last twenty years, uh, we've been engrossed in uh, information technologies. You know, we have all these platforms and devices, our laptops and our smartphones and so forth. And we've used those to manage knowledge. And that, that's great. But now, uh, if we're entering an age of consciousness, we need a different technology, a technology of consciousness, ways that we can use to change consciousness. And we all do this really every day. The typical person wakes up in the morning and drinks coffee. Why? To pick themselves up, to change their consciousness from sleeping to active. And then at night, you might have maybe a, a, a cocktail or something, uh, again, to... Maybe calm, you need to. <laughs> yeah, to calm you down. So we, we do this um, uh, now, but we don't recognize what we're doing. What we're doing is we're shaping our consciousness, our sense of awareness. We need to do that on a big scale to realize that consciousness is something that's crucial. It's the way we live our lives. Uh, and that uh, we can control it. And we have to have all of these different tools for shaping it more effectively for ourselves and other people as well. That would, that would be a powerful boost to recognize the, the need for technologies of consciousness. So we would organize meetings differently so that they're more likely to be successful and so forth. You know, it is endless because almost everything uh, affects consciousness. Indeed. 
uh, and I think we uh, uh, we have a lot more to talk about. So we'll save some more time and more discussion for another day. You know, Dr. Halal, thank you so much for your being here with me and the audience today. You know, it's it's really a great opportunity to highlight the work WFSF members such as yourself do and how we can all benefit from this um, knowledge sharing. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Halal, thank you. Thank you so much for... Uh, for sharing and, and I hope you come back. You have to promise me you will come oh, back. Yeah. yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. You're a great host. Thank you so much for for taking the time. I know you're fairly busy. The book is out there, uh, but uh, now you took the time to come and explain I what might, you're doing. I might, uh, just uh, tell your uh, your viewers that if they go to beyondknowledge.org, they will find a quick synopsis of the book beyondknowledge.org. Thank you, Rob. I will add that to the uh, to this video as well. Uh, so again, Dr. Hello, thank you so much for for your time today. Bye bye. Uh, so uh, folks, again, uh, thank you so very much for uh, being here with me and Dr. Hello today. You know, stay tuned. This show in focus is broadcast via Futures Television, our home of the future on television. We broadcast via Roku TV and Apple TV. This show is available freely via the Roku stick on Roku Enable TV sets or using your Apple TV box. Look for Features Television and do add us to your list of preferred channels. You can also listen to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on radio. And of course, you can go to WFS.org where you can find all of those shows together in one place. Again, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and I hope to see you again soon in another episode of In Focus. You can rest assured we have a list of great guests ready to share their views with you. Again, thank you so much, and I will leave you with our institutional message. See you next time.